Hi everybody, thanks for coming along to the podcast. As you may have guessed, this is an intro before the actual intro. I've added this in after the show has been created and posted. Uh, A couple of reasons that I'll go into. One of them being, since this episode has come out, there's been a lot more information that has come out. There's been a lot more events that have happened um, we've had the Pfizer documents, Pfizer wanting to hold withhold their information for uh, 50 or 75 years. Uh, since then, there was a court order that said they had to release some of those documents. I've come across uh, a lot more information about adverse reactions, the rate of adverse reactions, um, and you know they were points that I would have loved to have brought up to my guest. And another suggestion is look at speeding up the playtime of the podcast. Um, I'd probably recommend going to one and a quarter speed. Um, I think that you will find that will help you push through all of the content quite quick um, and still being able to keep up. With all that said, here is the podcast. This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi everybody, welcome to Bumping Into. I am Francis Populin and this episode we are going deep into the rabbit hole of COVID-19 vaccinations. I have tried very, very hard to stay out of this whole thing, but... I suppose one point of view that has always interested me is what if you took reasonable, logical concerns that are coming from other doctors and scientists and pinned them at someone who was of the straight-down-the-line mainstream belief, uh, someone held in high regard, someone very intelligent, that could either provide why that explanation is wrong or not wrong, um, interpret it a bit differently, find out what's lacking from that statement. And, and ultimately, I would have loved to have reverse engineered it and gone back the other way as well, which, which we may still be able to do in the future. But this episode is all about taking what are more reasonable, logical concerns from doctors and scientists around the world um, in regards to the COVID vaccines and their safety. We also, I mean, the big, the big ticket issue, I guess, in, in the current day is is more around the forced vaccines or mandate vaccines, which essentially are being forced. Um, and I suppose that that's a separate issue on its own, but it does tie into this. And, you know, we are looking at uh, if the government has the power to do this now, what else can they do later? Please don't go into this thinking I'm one direction or the other. Essentially, the only hard line I am going to take is that I don't think it's right to force groups of people into a irreversible decision. Uh, and you could look at that on anything. You could look at it from conscription to circumcision. A- anything that is an enforced that you are enforcing upon someone that cannot be returned is essentially a very dangerous thing. Um, that's probably my only uh, clean, hard objection or I guess opinion I mean I, I would hate to think of the mental state that some people have over this issue and, and the fears um, that they would have if they are fearing the vaccine or they're fearing the segregation uh, that you know whatever it may be the government uh, and the media really have a lot on their hands uh, that they could be doing a lot better I was fortunate enough to speak with Peter Doherty of the Doherty Institute in Melbourne uh, at Melbourne University. Now, 
Peter is a, a very highly regarded uh, professor. Um, he's he's 1996 Nobel Prize winner uh, for his work around the, uh, the I suppose T cells. He's very straight down the line and a strong advocate for COVID vaccines, believing that the risk is virtually minimal uh, and far outweighing any other complication. Now, that is in stark contrast with a high amount of doctors um, and two that I have assembled, uh, I suppose, the basis of my questioning from. I mean, I've got questions for Peter that come from a whole range of various newspapers from all around the world and university studies. But essentially, there's two doctors that I felt were, uh, well, three, that were presenting reasonable uh, concerns. And when they are doing them, they, they, they come across logical. Um, and, you know, if you had only heard them and nothing else, you would be of the belief that perhaps there is a greater risk than we are aware of. So those two doctors are, for your own research, anyone that wants to research this, is Dr. Ryan Cole. Now, he's an American doctor. Um, he has done a presentation on COVID-19 to the American frontline doctors. Uh, it was about a 15-minute presentation. There was a lot of information from that, but that does form the basis of a lot of my questions. Um, what I didn't get to go into, and we, we simply ran out of time, so that is important too. I, I, you know, There was a lot left on the table. I, I think I had about 12 pages of notes to talk to Peter about, and I maybe got through four. We simply ran out of time. He, he had other commitments um, from midday onwards. Um, but look, another doctor that formed some of my notes was Dr. Peter McCulloch, um, who is a uh, cardiologist, an epidemiologist, and a professor of medicine at Texas. Um, now, he is... Uh, he will make it very clear that he is very pro-vaccine. However, he is not pro-COVID vaccine. Um, and he will go into why. So my notes do cover some of the stuff that he has said. The big thing I need to make clear, I guess, is a disclaimer. I do not want anything in this episode to be the single identifying factor as to why you did or did not get a vaccine. Nothing in this episode is formal advice. Nothing in this episode is medical advice. This is a conversation that I had with a professor on questions that I had noted down that I thought were reasonable and logical concerns regarding the vaccine. If you choose to get it or you don't choose to get it, let this podcast form an interesting part of your collective research, but don't let it be the deciding factor. Peter, you know, obviously in his background, he's more qualified to give a recommendation and you can take that if you like. I also want to make it clear that, look, I, I was hesitant to open up this rabbit hole because of the tyrant of abuse that, that people do, um, you know, the commentary that can come of it. And Peter himself has received a lot of that commentary from people who are against the vaccine. And look, to Peter's credit, he he was not for the forced vaccine. He mentions in this uh, conversation that he he believed that it made sense for frontline workers, nurses and whatever to, to have it. Um, but he didn't see it necessarily this massive push to be enforcing it all the way down the chain. So, um, you know, anyone that is against it, I do think needs to take that going into this, that he, he was not part of that train pushing the mandatory hard forced vaccines or the withdrawal of freedoms that we're seeing uh, coming into place. Um, so, that look, I do think that's an important thing to take from it. Look, there, there was a lot of information that was left off that we didn't get to talk about. And some of it, I think, was quite important. I am going to list that at the end um, because I do think it's important. I don't want anyone walking away thinking that this was cherry-picked. 
um, questions. I, I virtually started from the beginning of where I did my research and um, didn't make it to the end. It's as simple as that. Um, th there are a lot of questions here that I will list and, and you're free to go and dig deeper on those topics and use that either for your case against or for the vaccine. It's entirely up to yourself. I think I've about summed it up. I think we can go into the interview and I hope that it is clear. Um, I've tried to keep it as clear and clean as possible. Like I said, hang back after the interview because there is a long list of dot points and names that I didn't get to talk to him about that I do think are extremely important um, and you know valid points of concern. And, and like I said, these are reasonable, logical concerns. We're not talking about things that, that people with no scientific or medical background are, are bringing forth. We're talking about people that own laboratories in America, people that were involved in the development of other vaccines. Um, so I think it all it all has a place. It, it can all be dissected and everyone can have their opinion on it and it can form your own basis, your own judgment. So I will catch you on the other side of this interview and we'll go through that together. And just a word of warning, uh, Peter does actually drop a couple of F-bombs. Um, so just in case you've got anyone else listening in the car. G'day, Peter. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much for making the time to, to talk. Sure. Are we doing video or just audio? Yeah. No, we, this is just, the, audio. just okay. the audio. So, yeah, we don't need our makeup on. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was about to go away and get the lippy. <laughs> I, I was blown away by you taking up my uh, my invitation. Um so to talk to someone such as yourself is, um, is, is, you know, it's a real privilege. So I'm stoked that you, you made time. I okay. wanted to do it. So as I mentioned in my email, um, I wanted to take the opportunity to throw at you some of the more um, not, not wild over the top conspiracy theories, because I mean, yeah, anything you like. Yeah, yeah, so I, I've got, a, I've got a list. Uh, it's been a topic that I've sort of really didn't want to go into because everyone else is offering an opinion and that's not what I wanted to do. So, I've, But sure. I, I think that what I've come up with is sort of going to be quite interesting. And so I'll throw at you a few things. Now, I know, and I've loosely looked at your Twitter feed because Twitter, like I said, it's, it's a dangerous place to be. I don't like spending time on there. Um, and I know you very bravely and, and you put your, yourself out there and, and um, you deal with it quite well. So I suppose people have asked you this and, and they may or may not have, but I know it's someone that's going to say, why didn't I ask? You're not getting funding from any of the big uh, Pfizer's or anything. No one's paying you for your opinion, are they? Oh, no, nobody's paying me for my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, the, the payment, I work one day a week for the University of Melbourne Otherwise, I'm uh, living on my retirement income. Oh, um, at the moment, wow. I think I'm working about um, about six days a week. Uh, no, I'm not being paid by Pfizer or Moderna or the Chinese Communist Party or anybody else. <laughs> Basically, I worked for 50 plus years on infection and immunity. I know something about it. I won a Nobel Prize for that work. And I'm just trying to get good information out there to people especially people who are confused about vaccination. And I understand it's a very, very complicated subject and there's a lot of stuff out there that's not good information. Yeah. And so part of what I've been trying to do is counter the bad information. So I think one of the things that I, I wanted to bounce off you is 
there's this the saying trust the science and, and trust science and science is this science knows and science is fact and I think one of the things that um, is probably been a bit of the, the the puts people in a whirlpool about not knowing is the fact that you have um, some scientists who are saying no this is this and then a lot of scientists saying no this is that and if you were to compare that to a uh, let's make a basic analogy of a painter and you had 10 painters and you said is that wall wet he's going to say they're all going to say no it's not wet if one says it was wet you'd be like well okay that's odd but generally 10 would say no and there used to be that saying that if you ask an economist uh, 10 10 economists the same question you get 10 different answers now it seems if you ask a scientist, 10 scientists, you're going to get maybe five or six different answers. And that's, I suppose, where someone who likes to look at evidence is going, oh, I just don't know. I don't know because what I was told is fact. You're telling me it's not, but you guys all went to a similar school. Um, the painters all got the wet wall question. How come you guys didn't? So I think that's a fair thing to say that when you get scientists breaking away, um, reasonable people are probably entitled to have a, a, a stand back and go, let me question. Yeah, science, you know, science in the context of the general public, basically, you know, we're not priests. Yeah. I don't yeah. like the word expert. I think it, it turns people off. Yeah. Basically, we're people who investigate, who make measurements, who look at the situation as it is and try and understand what's happening. And there are very formal rules that science operates under where you you do the analysis, you make the measurements, you write it up, other people review it, and then you publish it. Now, we, we, at the moment, we're not requiring that the stuff be reviewed. We're putting good information up there uh, as preprints that are pre-reviewed because we're trying to get information out fast. And yeah. the reason for that is we're dealing with a totally new disease yeah. we've never seen before, and we've been uh, trying to understand it. So even if you look at an individual scientist, you may see some of their messaging will have changed through the course of this. For instance, my messaging about masks has changed okay. because we, we didn't really appreciate how important masks are early on. And a lot, a lot of people were a bit skeptical about them, but they are important and we know that. So we learn as we go along. So the yep. scientific narrative is not like the religious narrative. It's a yes. narrative that, that changes. It develops. And you get differences of opinions. Now, unfortunately, you will get some scientists who get, um, and I must say it's particularly true of some medical doctors, quite frankly, who will go off the reservation. They get com committed to something early on and they can never back off. Yeah. So, you know, all of us, if, if, if you're a good scientist, what you do when new information comes along, you break the, the whole question down to the basics again. Yeah. You think it through again, and then you come out with it. So I think across the responsible scientific community, and I'm not talking about some of the, the outliers who are on television, and, you know, they always start by telling you how famous they are, right? Yeah. But there's no, I mean, there's no separation in the responsible community on the fact that it, it, you're much safer to be vaccinated against COVID than to catch COVID. That, okay. Nobody's disputing that. Yeah. But there's all sorts of misinformation out there that claims to draw on science. But when you actually go back and look at it, you can see often that scientific studies have been deliberately misinterpreted. And that really is a pretty despicable thing to do. Yeah. And I guess it's, if you, uh, it's, it's like anything. If you don't know the product well enough, you shouldn't touch it because you can make a mess of it. So um, I guess that can easily happen. I, I wanted to... Now, I, I wanted to quiz you on 
So I suppose we'll talk about the vaccines because I've got a couple of notes. So I did want to send you some videos of YouTube that were doctors having, a, a, I suppose, an alternative. Yeah, look, I, they're, they're I won't look on. at them. I, oh, I, okay. I mean, I, I get, I get, I've got 101,000 Twitter followers now, and oh, I regularly get these you, YouTube videos of these yeah. American doctors who are, are telling you this stuff. Yep. And I honestly, I don't know where their heads are. They're yeah. all telling you how famous they are and how important they are. And basically, they do update. And some of them, what they're saying is fine. And some of what they're saying is not fine. But it really, I can't be bothered with it. So I don't look at them. Okay. Looking at the vaccines, because there's the, the one vaccine I wanted to ask you about is the French one that's yet to be approved. Um, if we, if we just summarise the types that there are. So I've made some notes. Pull me up if any of this is wrong, because this is, uh, this is uh, Year 12 multi-strand science 20 years ago. That's the cap of my knowledge. Um, so we've got, obviously, the, 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 the Pfizer, the Moderna, which is your mRNA um, uh, vaccines. Now, they, they use, and I know I think you don't like the term, but a genetically engineered um, mRNA to permeate into the cell and then download a message into that cell to create the spike protein, which then creates the response. So you've also then got your vector um, vaccines, which uses a genetic material of the virus mixed with another virus. And now tell me if this is, this is the, I suppose, the cartoon no, no, version. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll clarify it a bit when, when I respond, but that, okay. no, you're yep. fine. You're on so you've got, you've got one virus's job is like a Trojan horse gets into the cell and then it lets the other one out that then creates the spike protein as then so the immune system can can make do its thing um you've then got the um attenuated vaccines which is like your measles mumps rubella vaccine which is the old school i guess you'd say of vaccines then you've got the inactivated which is the ones that are grown in a lab um, they're then killed and then that's injected so the body recognizes that and then off it goes so the the one that interest me is this French one, the, um, the Valneva one that's meant to be coming. Honestly, I don't know about the French one. Oh, you know okay. What sort, of accent, what sort of accent is it? So it's, so the story that's been run about it, and then it's probably a couple of months old now, is it's an, ina- an inactivated vaccine based on traditional methods such as polio and the flu. It's built on technology that has 50 plus years behind it. It uses a dead virus so your cells can build antibodies it, in theory, should also be a vaccine that has a lot less side effects due to the virus being dead, and as opposed to the other methods yeah. that are far yeah, more involved. Okay, okay. So, so basically, uh, the dead virus vaccine. That actually, the dead virus vaccine that's out there and has been very, very widely used is the Sinovac. Okay. It's um, it generally hasn't worked as well as the mRNA or the vectored vaccines, the ones you mentioned, yeah. but with a third dose, it's really working pretty well. And an actual fact, the Australian TGA, our Therapeutic Goods Administration, who sort of recognises and is telling us what vaccines we can recognise if we, for instance, require vaccine passports or, or proof of vaccination for entry, has, has decided to recognise that vaccine. So it's a reasonably good vaccine. So they're reasonably good vaccines, but think about this. Okay, so what you do is you grow up the virus in, in with flu vaccines, we used to grow them in eggs, but you'll grow them up in some sort of tissue culture now. And uh, it'll be in fetal bovine serum and there'll be a lot of stuff in there. 
and then you clean them up a lot by centrifuging them or whatever, and then you'll kill it with, um, with a chemical like formalin or beta-proprolactone. And when you give it, you'll probably give it with what's called an adjuvant. That'll, that'll be something else that helps get the immune response going. So most of the flu vaccines we get in Australia there are those kill vaccines. You can get some um, side effects from them uh, there. And because they contain a whole lot of virus that's not actually important for the immune response, but we will respond to it, they're in a way rather inefficient. And, and the reason I'll say that is that if when we the mRNA vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is one of these adenovirus vector vaccines, are only making only containing one protein from SARS-CoV-2, the virus, okay? One, the spike protein, because the spike protein is the one that's on the surface of the virus, and it's on the surface of the virus-infected cell. And what the antibodies that are made in response to that vaccine are doing is binding hold of that spike, stopping it attaching to our ACE2 molecules on our cells so it can get into our cells. So that's the way they work. Now, viruses can only grow in living cells. They can't grow themselves. They're inert, they're inert particles. They're not like bacteria. They can't multiply themselves. They have to get into our cells, take over our cells, and then grow. And they'll make mRNA. <laughs> that's how the mRNA is the template to make the protein. And they'll do that in the cytoplasm. So, but if when you make, when you take the mRNA vaccines only against spike, the adenovirus vector vaccine only against spike, then what you're doing is you're excluding another 28 proteins the virus makes. Because if you make antibodies against at least 26 of those proteins, they're not on the surface of the virus or the infected cell. So the antibodies are actually useless. Now, it doesn't matter that you're making all those extra antibody responses. Well, it means instead of making just one set of antibodies, against the spike. You're also making antibodies against those other bits of the virus that get, you know, from damaged cells or, or dead virus. A lot of virus that's made usually in an infection is dead. It, it's not infectious. You make a lot of stuff that doesn't work. It gets broken down, but you'll make antibodies against all those for no point. Okay. Right. Now, the other, other potential issue there, and it's probably not a major one, is that some viruses are thought to trigger what we call autoimmunity. Autoimmunity is when something in the virus is like something that's normally in us and the antibody against the virus bit cross-reacts with us and those antibodies can then attack something within our bodies. Now, we know of some, we definitely have tied some of these to bacterial infections, not necessarily viral. But frankly, you don't want to make a, lot, a whole lot of useless antibodies if you don't have to. So, so actually, a kill virus vaccine, we also had very severe reservations about kill virus vaccines at the beginning of this week for COVID because some experiments were done with the original coronavirus back in 2002-2003. They were actually dropped and not pursued because the virus disappeared and died out. But the kill vaccine that was used then in monkeys we were getting a bit of what we thought was an enhancing antibody effect. Now, this is a type of antibody which can bind to a bit of the virus and help it get into the cells. And it's a problem with an infection we call dengue, 
which is why it's very, very difficult to make dengue vaccines. So for that reason, none of the Western countries went after kill virus vaccine. They wanted to make sure there was no enhancing antibody effect. And there has been none that we can see with the vaccines. You also missed another category of vaccine that's very important. These are what we call recombinant protein vaccines. And you may have heard of Novavax. Yep. Now, Novavax is actually a, a, what we call a recombinant protein vaccine, where you make the manufacture the actual spike protein outside the body. And it's actually in, a, in moth cells of all things. You make the protein, then you purify it, and then you give that with what's called an adjuvant. Novavax, the adjuvant will be um, a compound extracted from the tree bark of the soap tree. It's called saponin. But that's helped to help get your immune response going. It, it mimics some of the things that an infection might do. So they're the types of vaccines. Now, the mRNA vaccines, when they get into the body, they only go into the cytoplasm of the cell. They don't go into the nucleus. Uh, they can't be copied back into our genome. They're not gene therapies. The mRNA is slightly modified from the mRNAs in the, that the virus would make to, to enable these vaccines to work better. But that's all it is. And we make millions of mRNAs within ourselves every day. And we destroy okay. them. We make them destroy them. Because every protein we make, and our body works on protein machines, is, it requires an mRNA. The the DNA vaccine, the adenovirus-vectored ones, it's, an, it's a, what we call a replication-deficient adenovirus. That it's, a, it's an adenovirus. These are big, bigger viruses that cause common colds in us. But you make it so they can't multiply themselves. You have to, make, you have, to have a special cell line with the genetics that allows that virus to multiply. And then you insert in that virus the spike protein DNA. You actually make DNA, the, the virus is RNA, you make DNA from that, you insert them into that. So when, when you get the adenovirus vector vaccine, the, the AstraZeneca or the J&J, it uh, goes into your cell. The adenovirus is acting as a, as, as you say, a Trojan horse to get it in there. The adenovirus itself can't multiply because it's replication defective. And the DNA, from that virus then goes into the nucleus, it makes mRNA for the spike, which comes out into the cytoplasm and makes the protein. So both vaccines essentially work the same way. They both make mRNA. One, you give the mRNA, one, you have the DNA, and then the mRNA is made from that. Neither of the vaccines can be integrated into the genome. They're not gene therapies. They, they disappear pretty quickly and they're out of your body. I mean, they're much, much less, less scary than taking some toxic chemical that uh, is normally used to see, treat parasitic infections or malaria or something. Right, okay, okay. So one of the concerns, I guess, uh, one of the big concerns is you've got typically, and pull me up if this is wrong, eight to 10 years to develop a vaccine to market, minimum two years of testing before you can issue it. And I think there's generally a 10-year um, testing period before they'll give it to pregnant people, pregnant women. Um, so I, I guess you'd have to understand that people who are saying, well, I've got something that was made in eight months, two months of testing, and now I'm being told it can be given to a pregnant person, where prior to this point, we had eight years before it got to market, two years minimum testing, 10 years minimum pregnancy 
Um, do, do, do you think that that is a valid, that a, a reasonable person would, you know, without being labelled anti-vaxxer? I, I can understand why people might find that, that rapid thing, but modern science is fantastic. It's enormously improved. The, the, um, I was around uh, the people who were making some of the, um, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccines back in the 1970s. I mean, some of the people I knew made them, and there was a very famous scientist called Bill Hildeman at Merck, who was fantastic at this. He made these live attenuated vaccines. What they did is they passaged them and passaged them and passaged them in tissue cultures. And as they did that, they were accumulating mutations. Now, they weren't studying the mutations. They, they didn't have the technology to really look at that then, but it was happening. And the viruses learned to grow well in the cell culture and not grow so well in us, though they still grow a bit in us. Now, to make a safe vaccine like that, you've got to be very sure of what you're doing which is why no live attenuated vaccines have yet been used with the COVID. Um, there are also live attenuated influenza vaccines, which can be blown up the nose, for instance. And it might be nice to have a live attenuated vaccine, you could do that, but you wouldn't want to do that too quickly. You really want to be very careful in how you did that. And you wouldn't do it that way anymore. You'd actually change the virus in ways. You would engineer the virus to be avirulent. And, and it would be a genetically engineered virus, which is not what COVID 2 is at all. So that's so to get away from that and to get away from the danger we thought might be happening with the kill vaccine is why we went to mRNA. Now, there have been about 20 years work gone into um, developing this M these mRNA vaccines. They just, they'd never emerged for human use, but there was a lot of work went into them. And then as soon as the virus, you know, the virus, uh, came into human populations uh, from what we know about December of 2019. Immediately the virus was isolated, the virus was sequenced, and on January the 15th, that's less than a month after the virus was isolated, the full sequence of the virus was published for all to see. As soon as the scientists had that sequence, they started to make these vaccines, okay? They also made the tests. I mean, the viral genome was sequenced, it's published mid-January uh, in Melbourne. We uh, set up the PCR test of Mike Catton and Julian Bruce in our diagnostic group, Vidral, set up the PCR test so that by the time the first case arrived on January 24 or 25th, we had the diagnostic test, highly specific, just for this virus, doesn't detect any other virus. And uh, so we, you get going. So that's modern science. With the influenza pandemic in 1919, 1918, the first influenza virus was not isolated till 1933. They made a vaccine, they made it fast, they made it against the bacterial infection, which can accompany influenza. It may have had a bit of help, but it wasn't against influenza. So the fact that we can make these so quickly reflects the, the modern science. We went through all the steps, they did uh, toxicology testing, which is the very first one that you have to do. And that's done by commercial operations. So they did that. They did preclinical testing in animals. They didn't do as much of that. And some of that they did concurrently with starting the trials in humans, but they still did it, okay? And then they went through the usual phase one, which is to see that the virus, the, the vaccine is safe in humans. Then they did phase two, which is a bit, uh, bigger, but it's, it's doing the same thing, but also seeing if it works. Then they did the phase three, that uh, is the protection. So they went through all those steps, but some of them they ran concurrently. 
and they followed the usual protocols. They, you have the, the, the people are enrolled into the trials, they're randomized, uh, the, the trial people don't know who's in the control and the trial group, and they have a data safety monitoring board, which is completely independent, which looks at the results. They, they'll look partway through, is this working? They'll look at them immediately. There's any incidents of uh, side effects, bad side effects, not just a sore arm or a bit of fever, yeah. but you know, really something serious. Anything like that, they stop the trial immediately. They won't know whether it's in the control or the, or the test group actually, but they'll stop the trial immediately and track that down. They didn't pick up the clotting problem with AstraZeneca because you know the trial participants, maybe they're testing 20, 30, 30,000 people with the vaccine. And this happens uh, at highest incidences of about one in 30, one in 40,000 uh, in actual, and the numbers have died about one in 500,000. They didn't pick that up. That was picked up later in Scandinavia. Right. So they missed that. But uh, basically um, with the mRNA vaccines, uh, the worries about pregnancy, um, some of the young women on the mRNA vaccine trial uh, got pregnant and more got pregnant in the, uh, in the vaccine group than in the control group. And basically the whole issue about not being safe in pregnancy, it's basically nobody has shown any indication that it's unsafe in pregnancy. But what is massively unsafe in pregnancy is to catch COVID-19. Honestly, I mean, it, it's, it's terrible in pregnant women. And I can give you a number of reasons for that. One is that what a pregnant woman, when she's heavily pregnant, really has trouble getting oxygen. I mean, the baby's there, it's pressing up on a diaphragm. She, her lung volume is decreased and you know, she's, she, she's yeah. really compromised. Okay, and, you're, and COVID, it's not like flu. It, it, it causes a pneumonia and that's bad but it also gets into the blood and goes around the body in the blood and causes what we call the coagulopathy. And that's a blood clotting disease. And when people go to hospital because they're having problems with blood clotting and with pneumonia and they're struggling for oxygen. Now you don't want a heavily pregnant woman or any pregnant woman in that situation. Not only that, the virus the receptors for the virus are also on the on the oocytes, the reproductive cells in a woman. They're on a lot of the cells in the system in human in men that makes the sperm and all that stuff. They can all be potentially infected with COVID. We don't know that they are, but they can be. And 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 basically, the other thing is, a vaccinated woman is making antibodies. That's what protects her. But those antibodies in women also go across the placenta into the fetus. So if the virus gets into the woman and infects her, if it does get into the fetus, the fetus is gonna have some antibodies to protect it. And not only that, when she delivers, she's got, gonna give that baby loads of antibodies in her breast milk. The first breast milk is called colostrum. It's loaded with antibodies. So if a woman is vaccinated, and I think all young women should be vaccinated uh, with the mRNA vaccine probably and not take the risk of AstraZeneca. All young women should be vaccinated. She'll have antibodies in her blood to protect her. She'll have antibodies in her fetus to protect the fetus. And she'll be giving the fetus antibody as soon as she delivers. The other great problem for pregnant women with COVID, and, and there's a passionate video from um, a medical doctor at uh, Monash 
who's having to care for these women saying, please, please get vaccinated. She can, she can lose the baby near to term. Uh, she may have to have uh, premature delivery because of it. And the other big problem is one of the ways you improve oxygen supply for someone with severe COVID who's in an intensive care unit or hospital is you prone them. That is, you turn people over on their stomach. And what that does, it takes pressure off the lungs and allows parts of the lungs that are not so normally used to be used. So not without giving oxygen, the person who's prone is getting more oxygen. And you can't prone someone who's heavily pregnant. And of course, you can't prone someone who's very overweight. And that's one of the reasons why very overweight people are really, really vulnerable to COVID. So there's a lot of nonsense out there that has no scientific basis at all. And some uh, people have cherry-picked research articles and put out misinformation about um, the vaccines making you sterile, the vaccines being damaging, the vaccines getting into your ovaries. None of this is true. It's all basically lies. So I'm going to throw at you one a claim touching on that because... There was a claim made by Dr. Ryan Cole, who is on the Idaho Public Health Board, and he also is the owner of one of the largest independent um, pathology labs, I believe, in that part of America. Now, he is saying, he's got a few things, and, and one of them I wanted to really quiz you on because he talks about uh, what you are very well across is the T-cells. Um, what he has found with T-cells, the killer T-cell. But he's, he, he's basically, the one thing, I'm going to jump ahead of what my notes are here because I want to come straight in off what you're talking about, pregnancies and fertility. So he states here that Pfizer have acknowledged that in, during the animal testing, the rats uh, had a 16 decrease in fertility and also residue of the spike protein in the ovaries. Look, I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm right here, and I, I have to look it up to really say. I think this was a rat study. Um, yeah, it was, it was something they, Pfizer did with rats, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something I, they injected Pfizer into rats. They, in, they injected, I think, a lot of vaccine into rats, and someone has trolled through the preclinical data, and they claimed that the uh, Pfizer, the vaccine, was making spike protein. The spike protein was injected, accumulating in the antibodies in the ovaries. In the ovaries, yeah. Actually, yeah. Uh, there was a serious fact check done of this. Okay. And it's not a public, not published information. Yeah. It's from preclinical data where they were trying to work out how to use the vaccine, okay, and to show that toxicology was safe. Yeah. And actually, it's misrepresented and misinterpreted. They didn't show that the spike protein was going into the ovary. What they found was there was more lipid in the ovary. I mean, the, the vaccine is spike wrapped in lipid. I mean, lipid is fat. We, we deal with fat all the time. We deal with mRNA all the time. The only thing that's foreign in the vaccine, I think, is, is polyethylene glycol, which is used a lot in medicine. And it's given a lot with uh, pegylated interferon, for, for instance. For, okay. It was hep C to, to very large numbers of people. And, uh, and it gets metabolized. So, so basically, it's a, it's a deliberate misinterpretation of, of preclinical data that was never published anywhere. Uh, but it is in the documentation for getting the vaccine license. Now, the point about the mRNA vaccines is simple. I mean, Morris Hildeman, who made so many of the vaccines, 
including the measles and mumps vaccines, as I recall from Merck, the, the live attenuated ones, basically said, I don't relax until, you know, the vaccine is tested in, say, 20,000, 30,000 people. I don't relax until it's been in 3 million people. Yeah. And if it's been in 3 million people, then I relax. Okay? Yeah. But the mRNA vaccines have now been into hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. And, and basically, I don't... It, it, there's at least... There seems to be a death in New Zealand of a woman who had one of these vaccines. The, the, the anti-vaccination people who look at the adverse events reports, crude yeah. adverse events reports, uh, say hundreds of people have died. People have died from this. Nobody's died, or very few people, if any, have died from the mRNA vaccines. Look, honestly, they put out in Australia, hundreds of people have died from the mRNA vaccines. Have you read about this in the press? Have you read about relatives talking about it, about having their relatives killed or their son or their daughter by the vaccine? Have you seen it on the media? I mean, these, these people claim there's some vast conspiracy that involves all the doctors, all the nurses, all the journalists uh, against uh, uh, the, the one true believers who know what the real problem is. Basically, they're, they're, they're fundamentally ignorant fuckwits. <laughs> So I'll, I'll, I'll bring you to, uh, I guess, a reasonable concern again. So this is from, uh, this is from an Israeli newspaper. Um, so there, we've got um, Michelle Lineal, who is a professor of biology and chemistry at the Hebrew University. Now, what her, she made a comment. She said, um, classical vaccines typically take 10 years. The world can't wait for 10 years. Uh, but when she was asked, would she take this new vaccine straight away? She responded, no, I wouldn't take it immediately. I would at least wait one year. That was also part of a comment that was made by uh, Tal Brosh, who's head of the infectious disease uh, for one of the hospitals in Israel. And he said, um, I acknowledge that there are unique and unknown ris risks to the messenger RNA vaccines. These will include local and systematic inflammatory responses that can lead to autoimmune conditions. Um, what we will have a safety profile, but only for a certain number of months. The long-term effects will come after two years and we simply do not know what those will be, but we cannot wait another two years to find out. Yes, I mean, that's, this is exactly what the anti-vaccination people do. They troll through everything that's written. They'll pick a few sentences from here, a few sentences from there. So, you know, what, what scientists do when they look at an issue like vaccine efficacy is they try to understand what's happening. They try to look at the data. They try to look at the plus and the minuses, and they try to get an idea of what's actually happening. So what the... What the anti-forces do, they've decided on a predetermined uh, conclusion. Then they troll through all the information to find anything, anywhere that supports their conclusion. It's the absolute antithesis of how science works. So you okay. troll through everything. You try to find something. Oh, God, we'll seize on this. We'll seize on this guy or that guy. It, yeah. I've, I've seen it in Twitter threads, for instance. Uh, people will put up a Twitter thread and they may, may say something number three in the thread and they'll seize on that, not on what precedes it. So it's, it's a selective, uh, uh, their, their whole life is directed at trying to find something that supports your position. Now, that's not what science does. If we find something that doesn't support the held position, 
you quickly move on from it. And the classical story is what happened with stomach ulcers and helicobacter uh, that won uh, the Nobel Prize for Marshall and Warren in Western Australia. You, you move on from it very, very quickly if you're wrong. And sometimes it's wrong. Now, do, do you think vaccines have been given to millions of people. Yeah. Now, there's, if you think about vaccines, if you talk to people who know a lot about vaccines, and I'm not, I'm not a vaccine expert, I know about infection and immunity, but I'm talking about the people who serve on downstream. They're serving on vaccine committees. They're, they're, they're serving on the trial. They help organise vaccine trials. They, they're part of that. They're part of the data safety monitoring boards. They're, they're involved in actually testing and, and looking at how vaccines work. You talk to them, you, you say, is there any instance of a vaccine causing serious problems after about, say, 12 weeks? They said, no, there's not. You can go back through the whole vaccination literature. There's nothing there that says that the vaccine, which is just a little bit of what's in the virus, it's not very different. It's pretty much what's in the virus, but a lot less of it will cause problems in the long term. That's not not a factor with vaccines. We haven't seen it. We know that the clotting problem with AstraZeneca can happen as late as six weeks. And that's the limit of it. And that's on our own TGA website. If you want to know the side effects of the vaccines that are being seen in Australia, you go to the TGA, Therapeutic Goods Administration. They have a weekly adverse events report. You can see exactly what the doctors are concluding. And they're not in some conspiracy. They're yeah. doctors that are, are, are charged with regulation and protecting people, what they're finding as adverse events. That, and they, they widely publicised the adverse events with AstraZeneca. So what these people are saying, they may say, make a remark at a particular point. I'll get stuff saying, oh, that, that's basically stuff recorded back in May last year where we broadly, broadly un barely understood anything. Yeah. Uh, refuting the vaccine that's happening now. So don't take any notice of this stuff. There's only one thing to think about with vaccination and COVID. Am I in a better position? I know there could be some risk, right? We know that adolescent boys can get myocarditis. Yeah. Now, pediatric cardiologists tell you this is a myocarditis. It's not typical. Even if someone has a day or two in hospital, they get better. It's not like the myocarditis that can result from uh, infection with COVID. It's much less. And they'll tell you, get the vaccine. Okay. Okay. So we, we've given hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines. People have looked at it. People of all, all levels of integrity and professionalism have looked at it. And we're not, and our doctors particularly are really good. I mean, if you think the medical profession, the medical profession in Australia is great. They're really good. They're straight as a die. And, you know, they're not going to tell you anything that puts you at risk. And so, I mean, basically, just, uh, just protect yourself. Get the vaccine. The, the, the chance of clot getting serious blood clots with the AstraZeneca vaccine, a serious blood clot that would cause you real problems, is maybe, um, oh, one in 30,000 in younger women. And the chance of dying is about one in 500,000 because we've got really good, at, the doctors have got really good at handling it. Now, the chance of getting serious blood clots from COVID infection is 800 times that. Okay. Do you, see, do you foresee with, particularly, I suppose, the mRNA, because that tends to be where the concern is, that 
in two years, a lot of people are saying, you wait, in two years' time, we're going to see cancers, autoimmune disorders. Yeah, yeah, they, they basically misunderstand what mRNA is. mRNA is the, is the template that's made from the viral genetic material. In the CARB2, CARB2 it's RNA. RNA makes a complementary copy, which then makes the mRNA. So the mRNA is a pattern. Okay, it's like a pattern. Uh, the the the, um, the adeno vaccine has DNA, which makes RNA, which makes mRNA. Okay, so mRNA is a pattern. Now every day, we make millions of mRNA, millions of them. Every time you get infected with a cold or flu or a boil, you're you're dealing. The body is dealing with millions of. They're dealing with mRNAs from pathogens. This is just, it's just mRNA. These are normal biological products that are made within us. The virus is encased in lipid. We handle lipid all the time. It's fat. We eat it. Okay. Okay. So basically, we're talking about really what are pretty much natural products that we deal with all the time. It's infinitely more natural to deal with the products in these vaccines than it is to deal with the, the chemicals, say, in hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or any of these drugs that people are willing to pour down their throats. These are definitely foreign synthetic toxic or, or fungal origin molecules. I mean, honestly, the, 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 why would we think that the mRNA would persist in the long term? It can't copy back into the genome. It can't stay in the cells, it will be destroyed. It only goes into the cells once and then doesn't come out again. It doesn't replicate itself. And, and so it, it's gone. Within, within a couple of weeks, anything that's in the vaccine will be gone, probably long before that. Why should we worry about the vaccine when we know that the virus is causing long COVID, terrible, terrible problems with long COVID, as many as 30% of people who get COVID can have some dullness and fatigue and so forth for up to three months after infection. And then a further cohort are going on to develop this long COVID, which gets progressively worse. There are a million people in the UK uh, surviving with long COVID. There are, there are long COVID clinics in all our big hospitals. The Alfred has one in Melbourne. Royal Melbourne has one. These people are really suffering. Kids can get long COVID, not as bad as in adults, and maybe not as long, but they get it. And they can have dullness and fatigue and brain fogs. There's some evidence of brain shrinkage with long COVID. We don't understand long COVID. Scientists don't understand everything. We haven't had time to really pull it apart. But we, and we don't know what's happening. We do know that the virus is causing immune dysregulation. We know the immune response looks different. There's something funny going on in everyone who gets COVID, not just the people who get long COVID, but we don't know what's, what's causing long COVID. Why would anyone obsess about the vaccine, which is pretty much natural product, which is pretty much got rid of soot quickly, when they're not obsessing about the infection? They've just got their head in the wrong place. There's a risk with everything. There's a risk when we cross the street. You run a daily, you run a risk, a one in 25,000 risk of being killed in a car accident in Australia every year. 
either being knocked down so you can't refuse to drive a car or dying in a car. One in 25,000 risk of being killed and a much, much higher risk of being permanently damaged. Now, why you would think that any risk associated with the vaccine is so serious is simply beyond my comprehension. There's no evidence for it. You can fantasize about everything if you want. I mean, how do you know that, uh, that drinking uh, a new form of green tea is not going to kill you, for Christ's sake? I mean, yeah. it makes no sense. What we, does make sense is this is a bloody awful virus. We don't fully understand it, and it can do terrible things to you in the long term. I'm reading so many reports of people who are, who are athletes, who, are, who sort of early on, they, they, they slowed their down they were fine they were looking fine and they didn't get long COVID but then six months they run a marathon or something and they crash we really do not know what know what this infection is doing and you really want to keep this virus out of your bloody out of your body because once it gets in your blood it goes everywhere in the body everywhere in the body maybe it doesn't get into the brain we're not sure of that but it goes everywhere in your body it can get into your heart your kidneys your blood vessel walls potentially your reproductive organs, it'll go everywhere. And see, that's, that's interesting too, because this same Dr. Cole has made that, that uh, I suppose, conclusion. And he's saying, though, that, that the, the, the vaccine is the virus and that, that it does do that. It goes to the heart, it no, goes the to vac- the kidneys. the vaccine is not the virus. The vaccine is a little bit of mRNA from the virus, which has had a few modifications to make it so they can make better mRNA and get it into the right place. The vaccine is not the virus. If if he thinks the vaccine is the virus, he's he's an idiot. It's not the virus. It's one protein from the virus that's made, one protein. The virus in our cells makes 29 proteins. It is not the virus. So I think he's saying it's the toxin. So he's saying the same toxin. the spike protein, the spike protein is the molecule that gets the virus into our cells. So the vaccine is not a toxin. If you inject lots of spike, you may get toxic effects. But if you want to get a lot of spike in your body, get infected. The virus makes the spike. The vi- viruses get into cells, they multiply, they make more product. And among the product is they're making a lot more spike protein. So that spike protein is you will have infinitely more spike protein in your body from being infected than you will from being vaccinated. It, 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 that, uh, I'm, I, I know I'm aware of this guy, but I, I haven't watched his video. I'm not going to watch his video. But basically, it, it, it makes no sense. Well, one thing I'm going to throw at you, if I can find it, because you're going to be all across this. So this is the bit that, um, about the T cells. So what he's saying here is we're seeing in the laboratories that the shots dysregulate your immune response. It's very important that your cells keep other viruses in check. They keep cancers in check. This type of cell is called a killer T cell, a CD8 cell. Um, There's studies in Germany and the Netherlands that are showing a shifted immune profile after the vaccine. The conclusion is that it's concerning as we're seeing a pattern of cells that we normally need to fight these diseases dying off so he's basically saying the answer is that we don't know how long this shifted pattern lasts um, with these killer t-cells he said think of it like a football team and taking certain amount of players off the field and opening up to the virus 
I, I have no idea where he's getting that from. And if you want to look at disruption of immunity, look at what the infection does, because the infection does a hell of a lot more than the vaccine does. Okay. So basically, what we do know with this about the immune T cell response, the, vac the virus infection will give you a broader T cell response because the, the T cells recognize little bits from any protein the virus makes, peptides. So the one thing infection will give you that's better than the vaccine will give you a broader T cell response. And that's an advantage. And, and actually the very best immunity you could get would actually probably be if, you, if you've had the infection, get boosted with the vaccine because that gives fantastic immunity. We know it, it really is terrific immunity, much better than the infection does. Though the infection can give you pretty good immunity. Now, the other thing though, is if you've had the vaccine and then you get infected, you will get a tremendous boosting. So you will have a fantastic response as well. So I'm not suggesting everyone should get vaccinated and then try and get infected because some yeah. people can still get unwell. They're very unlikely to go to hospital, but you still can get a breakthrough infection that makes you a bit unwell. But it would give you fantastic immunity. So the CD8 T cell responses, the, the virus itself is turning on a CD8 T cell response, but broader than we get with the vaccine because you've only got the one protein in the vaccine. But the vaccines are making good cytotoxic T cell responses. I'm actually uh, a member of a couple of trials. They're called, uh, they're, they're, they're observational trials. That is people who've been given the vaccine are being bled every, every, uh, every uh, few weeks to see what they're doing. And we're looking at the antibody response and we're looking at the T cell response. Now, quite frankly, to look at T cell responses, you need a very sophisticated laboratory operation. And there are few laboratories in the world that, that can do it properly. We do, we, this is my field. I won a Nobel prize for that. Yeah. So we, we've set up, my, my colleague, Catherine Gudzierski, for instance, is set up to look at the human T cell response. And we do that fantastically well, as well as anybody on the planet and better than 99%. Okay, so we can see following the vaccination, it's making good killer T cell responses, it's making good to help a T cell responses, but only against peptides from those spike proteins. So basically there's nothing wrong with the immune T cell response to this virus or to the vaccine. They're working fine. And I mean, any infection is going to, is going to cause problems with your immune responsiveness for a time. And, and it's one of the issues. One of the issues is very hard to investigate actually. And if uh, the vaccines are causing more problems than, than the infection, that would be con contrary to anything I've ever understood about science. So I very much doubt this. I don't know how you'd have in that sort of laboratory, he's running a diagnostic lab. I don't know how we would have the sophistication to study this properly. I very much doubt it. And uh, yeah. I, I think he's full of shit. So the next one I wanted to throw at you is the, I suppose, adverse reaction rate. Um, now, like you said, the TGA, they do list that. And I think up to the end of September, there was 6,000 roughly adverse reactions officially listed. What well, I could... You're looking at the... You're looking at the... You're looking at everything that's listed and as an adverse reaction. You, there are 25 million Australians. I mean, 50% of the population in Victoria is now vaccinated. So if 50% if, if of the population is vaccinated, you've put the va vaccine into millions of people. Yeah. Some of those people get sick and some of them will die after getting the vaccine. Yeah. We don't conduct a concurrent survey 
of the number of people who get sick and die who don't get the vaccine, okay? okay. So we don't have a control. So what happens with those adverse reports? If, if you get an adverse effect, I think you can report it. Your doctor can report it. You, you may get um, some chest pain. You may get a sore arm. You may get a fever. Maybe a month after the vaccine, you drop dead. Yeah. Now, that will very likely be reported by someone as a, as a possible adverse effect of the vaccine. So then what the TGA and what, what the scientists have to go through is to go through all these data, all those 6,000 reports or whatever they are, they have to check to see, is there any likelihood that this is linked to the vaccine? Because people die. I mean, people get sick. It's just a fact of life, particularly old people. They tend to die. Yeah. Okay, so you look and, and you see, I mean, can it be linked back to the vaccine? And if it can, then you report it. So if you look at the adverse events reports from the TGA, you will, you will find that it's a weekly report. It will tell you what the actual adverse events are, not the, the crude data on adverse okay. events reports. That doesn't tell you anything. It has to be investigated. And it's a misrepresentation of what adverse event reporting is. It, it's just showing that people get sick and die in the population. And you can't, just because someone's in the vaccinary group, you can't automatically. So, so really the, the tightest analysis is really from the clinical trials because you have say 20,000 people getting the vaccine, 10,000 people not getting the vaccine or 20,000 people not getting the vaccine. So if you look at the adverse events reports from there, you will see what the actual relationship is. Yeah. And that's what the vaccine people look at very closely before any vaccine, what the regulators look at closely. They do an enormously thorough analysis. So you can't make anything of adverse events reports until the report is investigated. Now, the people who look at those in Australia and say, all these, they say, all these people are dying from the, from the, the Pfizer vaccine. The, an actual fact, I don't think the TGA has concluded that anyone has died from the Pfizer vaccine in Australia. They all have to be tracked down. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the fact is people get sick and people die. If, if I could compare, and I don't have the figures, so I'm, I'm hoping that you could make a broad comparison, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Now, I remember when one of my kids was born and the doctor said, oh, look, they've come so far ahead now, they virtually don't even get sick. If you want, you can give your kid a little bit of um, baby Panadol, but you, you should notice nothing. So if we compare how far the, that vaccine has come and, and the way that you feel having had it, compared to the side effects that we're getting with the, the Pfizer and the Astra at the moment. Would it be fair to say that version two, three, in two or three years, that will, those side effects, if any, will drastically come down? Is it going to be an evolution of, like, if, if you do wait a little bit, chances are we're going to refine it. It's going to be, version two is going to be far safer, far less adverse uh, total reactions. And it'll be like the measles mumps. You'll have it and maybe feel a little bit of a temperature. For a start, it's a totally different vaccine. I mean, totally different type of vaccine. Secondly, uh, yes, possibly. Possibly, as we understand more about the mRNA vaccine, we've got a lot, lot more experience with them, certainly with those adenovirus-vected ones, which where it seems to be related to the adenovirus-vected, not to the, not to the, um, the COVID. Yes, certainly, we may see, uh, we may know, understand ways of, uh, say, eliminating that clotting problem with the AstraZeneca vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, as we understand it better. Because it is, tell me if I'm wrong. No, it's possible. But the problem is that if you wait a year, you may get COVID. Yeah. And you're infinitely worse off if you get COVID. It's a risk-benefit equation. 
and there's no particular reason to be frightened of these vaccines. Um, they may make you feel pretty crappy for a few days or even a week or so. And, and uh, the Pfizer vaccine, that'll be on the second shot. AstraZeneca vaccine is likely to be on the first shot. You may feel lousy. Uh, you can get that with a lot of vaccines, but maybe with the mRNA, we can find ways that we, you will get less of that. But the thing yeah. is, you will be, I mean, people are dying with COVID and they're asking for the vaccine as they're dying and it's far too late. I mean, you know, yeah, what you've got to do is control this infection early before it gets into your blood. And the way you do that is you have the vaccines. Just think of the vaccines as kickstarting the immune response, honestly. I mean, don't, don't, I'm not saying there's no risk with the vaccines. There's risk with everything. There's risk with crossing the street. Yeah, I'm an old guy and I live in a house with two stories. That's a very risky thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But basically, the risk of get, uh, that's associated and the benefit that's associated with the vaccine, the risk of what can happen to you if you get COVID is just not acceptable. And if you're talking about unknown with the vaccines, we're talking about one protein, one mRNA. With the, the virus, you're talking about 29 proteins and you're talking about loads of mRNA and you're talking about a virus that gets in your cells, multiplies in your cells, kills your cells, infects other cells, gets into your blood, goes around the body in your blood, infects cells in your blood vessels, infects cells in your kidney, infects cells in your heart. We worry about myocarditis with the vaccine, which is, seems to be transient, mild, and even if someone's hospitalized for a while, people are recovering pretty much completely. With the well, vaccine virus, we worry about myopathy. Myocarditis is inflammation. Cells go in, they cause inflammation, and they go out again, and it resolves. And if it's really bad, you've got some scarring, but we're not seeing that with this, as far as I understand. Okay, that was my next question. Yep. The, virus, the virus can get in your cells, in your heart cells. It can grow in your heart cells. It can kill your heart cells. This is what we call myopathy. And also, it causes clots. The clots can give you a heart attack. They can give you a stroke. This is permanent damage that yeah. can't be reversed. So you can end up with never being as good again. If you recover from this, you, if you've had COVID-19, you may never be as good again. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a strong message. There's no doubt about that. Um, Israel, they're, they're now talking the fourth booster. Um, there's almost the whole population is now vaccinated and they're on to round four. Is there any yep. end of sight? Is, the, is, the, is that, how, how do they? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see with that. I, I, I think they're a bit over the top with the first, fourth booster unless they're boosting against the Delta variant. Basically, what we've seen from the Israeli data, the Israeli data is complicated because they've got a lot of people vaccinated. So a number of people who are vaccinated are in hospital because, you know, more people are vaccinated. It's like uh, with kids in, um, in the US. We're seeing more kids in hospital because kids are heavily represented in the, un in the unvaccinated. Okay, so if you break down the Israeli data by, um, by age, because when you get vaccinated people in hospital, it's usually because they're old and frail or their immune systems are compromised and they just don't make a good immune response. So basically, the, um, if, you if you break down the Israeli data by age, you can see... 90% protection all through it against keeping people out of hospital and 95% protection against people dying. And so it's very, very clear. Now, the Israelis have found that vaccine-produced antibodies fall off 
they fall off more quickly than the virus produced ones. The virus is, is maintaining it higher. So you need to boost them up. Now, how much boosting we'll need, I don't know. But basically what's happened as the antibody levels have fall off in the Israeli study is more people get infected who are vaccinated. It's hard to keep enough antibody up in your nose to stop the virus before the virus gets to the cell. You're asking that it'll hit an antibody first and, and there's not a lot of it up there, much more in your blood. So basically what the Israelis are finding as antibody levels fall off, more people get infected who are vaccinated and they can potentially transmit to some extent, though they seem to be transmitting a lot less. And, but basically they're still not going to hospital because the virus is rebooting the immune memory, we call it, the memory cells that the vaccine has induced. The virus reboots those and we get the antibodies levels right up again pretty quickly. So, so yes, how much boosting we'll need is not clear. I think we will need boosting, probably at least one boost a year. And how we'll go in the longer term is not clear. But I think we'll, we'll find that if we can get, I mean, evidently up to 90% of the Australian population is willing to be vaccinated. If we can yeah. really get that many vaccinated, I think we'll find we're in a much, much better situation this time next year than we are now. It'll be a new normal, but we're not trying to stop people getting infected. We're trying to stop people get sick. Yeah. So what we really need to look at is not the cases from PCR diagnosis. We need to look at hospitalisation numbers. We want to keep people out of hospital for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Um, primarily their own their own health but yeah for sure but, you know we're really worried about the stress on our hospitals our nurses our doctors we're worried about icu beds being taken up when they're needed for heart attacks or car accidents we really want to keep people out of hospital and that's why everyone needs to be vaccinated and make their contribution and if they they're scared of vaccines or whatever they need to hold their nose and just get a little couple of little pricks in the arm which they very likely won't even notice yeah okay can i just quiz you on the test the pca test there was yeah, we'll make, make it the last question the last question we'll... and then i'll let you go yeah. um that test at the start people were saying it it looks for an immune response it doesn't no, look no. for the virus that's wrong no, it looks for the virus the pcr yeah. test is detecting viral material just okay. virus it's detecting a small piece of virus material absolutely unique to cove 2 that's the way the test is designed yeah. So it tells you you've got code two, not something else. So you're expanding virus up and the numbers of times you've got to run the cell cycler, which, which you need for this, the more times you've got to run it, the less virus you've got. So if you've got a high, uh, uh, the number is two or three, four or something, you've got a lot of virus. Now, it's, um, so it only finds virus and when it doesn't detect immune response at all. So when you get negative on the PCR test, it means you just don't have virus genetic material up in your nose in right. that rat region. Okay, so, it's, yeah. so it means you got rid of the virus there. You may have gene fragments coming out in your gut and your stool, for instance, and that's why you can pick it up in sewage. Very, right. very sensitive, incredibly sensitive test. And so that's why we test sewage because you can tell whether the virus is in a region. So, and, and we may be pushing out bits of virus for longer than we're, than we're positive up here. But now we're getting to this rapid antigen test. They're also testing for virus and they will be tests that will be rolled out. You'll probably be able to get them at the pharmacy. I think they may cost about $15 each. Um, and you can test yourself. If you're, um, 
I think we'll be able to do that and we'll be able to use them as schools and construction sites and so forth to check people because you can get a result back in 15, 30 minutes. Yeah. So it still requires a nasal swab actually from for most applications, but, but we'll be able to do them. So I think we'll see a lot of this change, but they, they're all against the virus. But also there are now, we, we should also be able to get tests which test antibodies. The, and and uh, there'll be antibodies presumed particularly to the ribonuclear protein. So the ribonuclear protein of the virus, it will, you'll make antibodies against that if you're infected. They're not protective, but you'll make antibodies against it because there's a lot of virus ribonuclear protein made when you're infected. So you, by testing for the ribonuclear protein, we can test to see whether you've been infected or vaccinated because the vaccine will only make antibodies against the spike. So there'll be tests that will test both. And we may be able to use that to assess our degree of immunity. So we might see a lot of this use of this type of tests in, um, in for instance, uh, before you board an airplane or, or maybe on a construction site, maybe in schools. Some schools in the US are using them already. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, if if you're ever allowed to travel again and you're on the Gold Coast, make sure you let me know because I, I owe you okay. a coffee. <laughs> well, well, thanks very much. I'm a Queenslander by birth, so uh, oh, I, right. I, I knew the Gold Coast when Surfers Paradise was a few beach shacks, oh, a, um, uh, a hotel with a sort of flea-bitten zoo, uh, <laughs> and and all those other other players places. The next place I think was down the thing was Corumban. Yeah. My um, my family, uh, my grandmother's family was were established in Corumban. Oh and, wow. Uh, my um, my dad used to go fishing with his relatives in Corumban Creek, and one of the uh, ways they did as Corumban Talabudger or Corumban or Talabudger. I suppose just yeah. before it, and then the next one's Corumban. Yeah. yeah. No, I was Corumban. There's and uh, so basically one of the ways they used to fish was to throw a gelignite in the water. <laughs> 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 Pretty ecologically disastrous, but I'm a Queenslander from way back and, uh, and uh, um, a beautiful place. Yeah, look, we don't have the buildings that you have down in Melbourne, but we, we've got the weather. Uh, except in summer, it's too hot for me. Yeah, no, you can be. <laughs> now, look, thank you. If you're ever up here, let me know. I'd love to. I'd love to buy you a coffee for your time. I certainly appreciate you giving up an hour of your time. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, fine. And really, I mean, there's only one basic message is get vaccinated. Um, the virus can do infinitely worse things to you than any vaccine could ever do. And there's really, I'm really very worried about long-term effect of the infection. I'm really worried about autoimmune disease resulting from the infection. I'm really worried about this long COVID phenomenon that we really don't understand. And it seems to be, after a year, seems to be getting worse in some people. So don't mess around. Get the vaccine. If you get the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, you'll be pretty much immune within six weeks. And oh. so it's a no-brainer. I tell you, really, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, okay. No, look, I, thank you very much for that message. You know, all I care about is seeing people get vaccinated and protecting themselves. And, you know, I just don't want anybody dying unnecessarily from this because what does happen, and you can find um, uh, URLs and websites that actually report this, what does happen when people who are rigidly against vaccines get the infection and get very sick, 
is they can die leaving children and they can die feeling really stupid. And yeah. I don't want that to happen to anyone. I don't care if they're anti-vaxxers or they're vaccine hesitant or whatever. I just don't want to think that's going to happen yeah. to anybody. Yeah, for sure, so, for sure. Yeah. It, it, I wish the media had done a better job. I mean, I think as soon as you you start talking forced and you start talking censorship, everyone starts going, oh, hang on. You know, I think, at the, yeah, uh, we, we, it could have been done a much gentler way. And like you said, 90% of people are willing. And it's probably yeah, fine that that frenzied pace has made everyone that would be getting it question it. And, and, and talking about this to people, because I'm in trying to persuade people, I've stayed away from the whole issue of mandates. I yeah. think we have to require that anyone in a, is, in, is in a hospital, a doctor or a nurse or EMT or whatever, is in contact with COVID patients, they, they have to be vaccinated, both for their own protection so they don't give it to other patients who don't have it. And so basically I do think that's essential, but I, I, I've stayed away from the whole business of mandates because yeah. as we saw in Victoria with the construction industry, mandates can backfire on you. Yeah, and, that's right, uh, yeah. So, so persuasion and trying to trying to get people to really confront the issue, and and the hardest thing to do really, and this is difficult for a scientist to understand because this is the way we think all the time, all the time, is to understand in terms of relative risk. Yes, maybe there is some risk with the vaccine, but the risk of the infection is infinitely higher. You've always got to think risk versus benefit, yeah. and the benefit is with being vaccinated. Yeah. And for any conceivable question you raise about this, the benefit is with being vaccinated, which why, quite frankly, I'm so angry with some of these uh, so-called medical experts whom I haven't ever heard of before anyway, who are pushing this stuff. Yeah. But they're all famous. I mean, they tell you they are. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Everyone's I'll tell you famous, they're famous. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I wrote a book about this a while back. It's called The Knowledge Wars. Okay. The Knowledge Wars. I mean, you know, some scientists go crazy and they go off the reservation. Some doctors do too. Yeah. And they'll, they'll big note themselves, you know, because of this. So, yeah. but the knowledge wars, it's a, the book's still around. It's, you can get it from Melbourne University Publishing. Tells people who don't know science, may not even like science. They may be hostile to it. And, and quite a few people are. Tells them how to look at science and see who's probably telling the truth and who's a fraud. And there are frauds out there. And, you know, they're massively in, in uh, climate science denial, for instance. Yeah, that's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother delicate issue. Yeah, isn't so that's why I wrote yeah. it. It, yeah. it. But basically, I looked at science from the point of view of an insider in the biomedical science, which is what I am, yeah. and an outsider in climate science, where I'm an informed scientist and know how to look at science. Yeah, but I'm okay. not in that field. In that I field, yeah. People in that field. So I've, I've tried to give people the experience of being an outsider and insider and try to suggest to them how they can go to try and find real data, how they can recognise the liars and deniers from the people who are actually trying to tell the truth about something because yeah. they will put out misinformation. This is, this is characteristic. Same thing you happen in anti-vaccination in climate science denial. They go through and they cherry-pick every bit of information they can find that supports their case. Yeah, that's not yeah. what you do in science. You look at all the data. You try to understand what's happening. You know, one, I'm sure you're across it. There was a scientist in 1901, an Australian scientist, who was the first to discover the link of lead paint and lead poisoning. Um, I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, you know, we've had some 
Dr. Gibson was his name. Um, okay. And he said he, he, he found, in 1901, he, he had found the link. He then uh, had another doctor helping him. By 1920, they represented their they took their findings to the League of Nations. The findings were in stark contrast to the industry back research. It took until 1970 to have lead removed from paint. Yeah, we move a bit quicker than that. <laughs> major, we've had major lead poisoning events in this country. We had one in Esperance. There were piles of ore containing lead on the wharf, um, blue dust. All the kids in the town had high lead levels in their blood. Wow. Uh, lead is a heavy metal toxin. It kills your brain cells. And, um, and basically mercury is another one. It kills your brain cells. Do they still use mercury in the, in the vaccines? You know, it used to so be a thing No, no. Uh, uh, tiny, tiny bits of mercury in some vaccines. Not, not in any of the vaccines we're talking about. Uh, okay. But they, um, they uh, uh, mercury poisoning in Japan, which is all industrial contamination. Wow. Uh, people wow. are dying of that. Um, arsenic. Uh, arsenic's a heavy metal. Uh, the um, early 19th century green wallpaper was coloured with arsenic. So people had this on their walls and they were dying of arsenic poisoning. Once the damage is done, it's done. You don't regenerate that part of the brain. So it's heavy metal poisoning. So I like and I use heavy metal poisoning as an analogy for what's happening in climate change. It's cumulative, it's inexorable, it's irreversible. Yeah, and hopefully we, uh, we figure out some sort of answer and we don't sit on our hands like they did from 1920 to 1970 with the... Uh... Well, and, and, um, and, uh, and basically with, um, with uh, um, heavy metal poisoning, there's what we call chelating agents. And they used this in the First World War because some of the poison gas uh, had heavy metal arsenic. I think, and um, so basically there's a thing called British anti-lewisite, which basically you give to people and it binds the metal and takes it out. So you can clear the metal out of your body to some extent after lead poisoning, but what you can't do is reverse the damage it's done in the brain. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so, wow. yeah. So. Well, yeah. look, I, I could talk to you for hours and I'm conscious of your time um, on okay. a whole range of topics because you've, uh, you know, it would be fascinating especially with the wealth of knowledge you've accumulated over your career too. So it's, um, yeah, so I, look, I'm really appreciative of what you've offered. Okay. Well, enjoy the Gold Coast. It must be yeah. a nice place to be at the moment. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Thanks for sticking through to the other side of the conversation. I hope you got something out of it. Um, there was a lot of information to take in, obviously, and we went off in a few different directions um, rather than steering down a linear path. But like I said at the start, I do have a list of things that we didn't get to ask, points I didn't get to bring up. Now, some of those were, I'm just going to rattle off here some of my notes. The, 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 this is rough cast here. So there's no, um, this hasn't been produced to uh, be favourable to one side or the other. These are rough cast notes. Take from them what you like. One of the things that I didn't get to ask Peter about is mitochondria damage. So mitochondria is essentially the engine room of a cell. Um, the argument being that when you have the vaccine, the spike protein damages your mitochondria. Um, part of that is that it doesn't stay localised to the one area, that it does travel, which is another point that I will get to about that, that it does travel throughout your body, which there you know, is various studies that are showing this happening. 
even including the one on um, on mice and rats that Pfizer found that it had travelled um, that we spoke about in the episode. But uh, the mitochondria damage was something I wanted to speak to him about because it, it there is a common complaint after the injection of sore eyes. One of the highest, most dense um, storage areas of mitochondria is in your eyes. So that was something I would have loved to have quizzed him on. The vaccine hesitancy. Now, vaccine hesitancy has been uh, turned and twisted by the media that if, you know, there's a massive divide, a huge divide, uh, how the media and the government can have let this happen. We've spent 30 years trying to bring all different types of people, races, colours and genders together and they've let really the, the pack fight it out amongst themselves and they've they've thrown fuel on the fire of creating this massive divide of a them versus us and the dirty non-vaxxers versus the purest vaxxers and no matter which side of the fence you're on you know you can believe that you're the most empowered side so it's it's you know that's gone astray but um, one thing is that uh, there was a study that came out of America and I, I, I'm not sure of the sample size now but it was quite high um, and they found that the highest amount of vaccine hesitancy came from people that held PhDs. Um, so there is logic in questioning, um, which is what really this podcast is about. It's about questioning, not blanket trust, whether you're for or against. Uh, and, you know, and I guess, again, that comes back into the whole being forced. Uh, you know, if there's a product available, or multiple products available, do you need to be forced? Science getting it wrong. Now, I did touch on that with Peter. I, I spoke about the example of lead paint where it took 50 years um, for, for industry, the industry acceptance and mainstream science to say, oh, maybe, maybe lead is dangerous in paint. That you know, was longer than 50 years from when it was first discovered. Um, but there are other examples. There's a 2010 flu vaccine that also, if you Google that, um, you know, that was a, a vaccine that had a lot of uh, side effects and a lot of issues. And people trusted it, uh, especially with a lot of children, got very sick off that vaccine. Um, so blanket trust again. Have a look at the 2010 flu vaccine. I did want to talk to him about that. The food pyramid. Well, the food pyramid has been turned up on its head in the last couple of years. So anyone that trusted that blanketly in the 1970s or particularly the 1980s when it favoured pasta and rice, um, that's been turned around now and, and restructured. Um I also wanted to talk to him about the um, the ivermectin mectin treatment uh, and the new Merrick treatment. Um, what are the difference between the two? I, I would have loved to have gone into the, into how these work and why some people are saying they're getting results with this and other people aren't. This rush product. So we touched on that traditionally you've got uh, cycles. You've got you know three years, four years. It, it's roughly seven to ten years for a vaccine to come to market. Um, it's at least 10 years before it's given to a pregnant woman. Um, but this has all happened in a couple of months and it's been issued and out and done uh, within less than 12 months. Now, does this set a new precedent? Has this changed the game? Does this now mean that, well, anything, all the boundaries have come in. Are, are we a free-for-all now rather than the old lines of time and testing? So that was another question I would have loved to have added. Um, the New England Journal in uh, September released a study saying that the COVID vaccine uh, may not be suitable for pregnant people. It found uh, a one in eight had miscarriages after receiving the vaccine. Um, it said that we should possibly reassess and go into a, a more cautious approach around that area there. Um, I would have loved to have mentioned that. In September 2021, Pfizer said it was safe for kids. Now, 
that came uh, th- there's uh, when that came about there was a little bit of of who said what I suppose around that now they said that at a phase 2 trial which the government basically took their word on um those results were never submitted to a regulator or published in any other journals um so effectively the government just took their word on that at that point in time i wanted to talk about the mrma um versing the the i suppose treatments versus vaccinations now traditionally mrma has been used for a certain type of cancer treatments and a couple of other treatments uh which i suppose if you look at your risk if you're treating people with that technology your risk of adverse reactions i guess is is far lower than a blanket let's do everybody as we have done with a vaccine so i guess treatment versus vaccination now i did want to bring up um one of the mrna founders robert malone now he was part of the team that developed and created mrma technology many years ago um and he is one of them saying that it's not fit for purpose that it basically has risks um and that it can create potential uh, autoimmune issues in x amount of years down the track um i had a few dot points on him that i wanted to 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 quiz peter on uh i also wanted to go into that apparently and, and again this hasn't been fact checked this was a question um I'm led to believe that normally you vaccinate after a pandemic, not during a pandemic. Um, so I wanted to, you know, go into that as well. Wanted to go deeper on the booster shots. Um, I mean, Israel, I'm led to believe um, if you don't have four shots, I think it is, your class is not vaccinated. So they're, I think, about to roll out their fifth booster shot. So is there too many? Is there a point where you are tinkering too much? Can we cross that line where it's just too much? Um that was another question. The safety profile. So look, Peter McCulloch, he has made a point of like I met he is a pro-vaxxer, anti-covid vaccine. Um if you look up Dr. Peter McCulloch, he has made a point of saying that if you look at the safety data on the covid vaccine and compare it to any other medicine, it is out of whack. It is not uh safe and he ba- basically is saying even on his own morals he's like I can administer all these medicines knowing certain safety margins um but this is not anywhere within that tolerance level and we are turning a blind eye to that so that's something that I really would have liked to gone deeper with because I would have loved to have compared the adverse reactions with something like measles mumps rubella or hepatitis b I could not find any of that information I couldn't find those figures um you can you know fairly easy find the adverse reactions for the covid vaccine but how high is high um it would have been interesting to compare it with these other time traditional vaccines and seen how you know and obviously virtually you know 90% of the population are receiving these other vaccines um what is the the comparison rate there and and is what uh dr peter mccullar saying that the the safety risk factor is too far one sided which has led to why he has stopped administering it in his own uh, practice i would have liked to have asked how long would it take traditionally how how long would it take for the data to come through and register a red flag i mean you know is it a case of that where is that line is is adverse reactions at a percent and how long before then we go oh okay put the brakes on this let's go back and look um 
you know, one thing I do agree with Dr. Ryan Cole on is he is, he is of the mindset that any medicine, any medicine, especially one that we're going to be forcing people to have, um, you need to regard that as guilty until proven innocent. So unsafe until proven safe, not the other way around, um, which is interesting. I would have liked on that topic to go on into indemnity. Um, you know, it is a big concern that all of these companies are legally, uh, they have no legal indemnity, um, so you cannot sue them. They are... Basically, if it was a product from Kmart, it comes with no warranty and no return. That is a concern. They're selling a product that, that isn't something from Kmart. That's a very sophisticated, life-altering product. Once it's in you, it doesn't get out of you. Um, but effectively, it has no warranty and it has no assurance. It has no... They have no legal liability whatsoever. So, you know, I did want to ask him, based on his experience in the industry, why? Why is that needed? Um... Why can they get around that, but yet a car company can't? A French doctor, um, who is also a Nobel Prize winner, um, he believes that ongoing vaccinations across the world will be looked at as a huge mistake. I would have liked to have gone into more around Israel's hospital admissions. I mean, look, Israel is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, um, and their hospital admissions percent on percentage, uh, majority are vaccinated. Um, so, you know, you've got that also in the UK at the moment. There was also a, uh, a researcher in Canada who went over Pfizer's biodistribution study reports uh, from the Japanese regulatory agencies. And he discovered that there is a problem with spike protein um, travelling around the body and causing damage, uh, neurological and cardiovascular damage. Um, that would have been another thing I would have loved to have, have, have gone into with him. Look, th there are so many more. I was never going to get through them all. We were never going to get through it all. And I'm not even going to get through them all here now. But just, you know, I think it's important. These are my notes. What I have said here is not to be 100% fact. These were notes to talk about to see if we could get to a fact. Because it seems to be very hard at the moment to get to any fact. Because there are so many different interpretations of that data. Um, which is one of the very first things that I asked Peter about. So take on board what you like. Do your own research. Um, I hope that you did find it interesting, if but nothing else. And that was my only intention for creating this particular episode, was it, it, it's the questions that I would have asked Peter if I saw him with someone as a broad interest in what's happening. So nothing here is medical advice. Nothing here is formal advice. These are purely questions that I would have asked based on an interest that I've accumulated over the topic. Thanks very much for sticking to the end of the show. It's been a big episode um, and I look forward to speaking to you in the coming weeks, hopefully with something a little bit lighter. If you know anybody that you do think would enjoy the show, please do share it. And you can always find out more at bumpingintocomau and I will speak to you next time. This podcast may contain copyrighted material, the use of which has not always been specifically authorised by the copyright owner. No copyright infringement has been intended. No formal advice is ever given by either host or guests. All comments and views are the personal thoughts of those speaking only, and no liability is withheld by bumping into. We have attempted to ensure all information and details provided are true and correct at the time of recording. 
However responsibility and or liability for the frequency of provision and accuracy are not withheld. Please visit bumpingintocomau for our full list of terms and conditions and credits.